the other person is not the source of your pain the other person is not the source of your discomfort but your perspective of it chooses what you're going to experience you could be looking at the same thing and experiencing pain or pleasure hi i'm dr dimple jangda i'm your podcast host and i welcome you to a gut story this is a podcast a platform where we're going to discuss healthy everything a healthy body healthy mind healthy emotion healthy energetics and a healthy spiritual journey we're going to also discuss stories of courage grit confidence discipline and patience that helped several people overcome tragic events in their life and physical trauma and we're also going to learn from several natural sciences like ayurveda naturopathy homeopathy yoga on how to reset our body back to good health and bring ourselves back closer to nature Welcome to A Gut Story with yours truly, Dr. Dimple. In conversation with the masters, we're going to collect from their experiences and wisdom all the insights that can help us improve the quality of our life. One life that we know of. There's going to be many births and rebirths, whether you believe in it or not, that's secondary. But in this one lifetime, how can we live the healthiest and the kindest version of ourselves? We're going to learn this from the masters, and today I have a very exciting guest. I'm so thrilled and excited to have him here. He is who I call Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings. He floats around in New York City on a cloud. He doesn't walk on his legs; he just floats in a cloud. That's what meditation has done to him. He has this flowing white beard that you can see. Okay, and it reminds me of my grandfather, who doesn't have a beard but has the same Caucasian appearance as Gandalf here, Hector Marcel. If I might bring you onto the show, Hector Marcel is a meditation teacher, a guide, a coach, I would say, and he teaches meditation through his firm, the Three Jewels, in New York City, in the hustle and bustle and the chaos of New York City that gave me my epiphany, by the ways, and the zenith of my spiritual experience, saying, "Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. What's next?" New York City can bring the best out of you and the worst out of you. Hector practices in the heart of that factory where people go through chaos, pain, ecstasy, and extreme pleasure and extreme pain. So Hector practices right there. He's also a coach, management, a corporate coach, management guide, and a teacher. And I'm really excited for this conversation. Welcome to the show, Hector. Thank you for coming. What a blessing to thank you for that introduction. Dr. Dimple, we just met and I'm already in love. So thank you. In love with what you're doing. Like it's stunning. And if you're listening to this, if you're interested in, in these topics, please from the little that I've seen with Dr. Dimple, please keep keep listening and looking and learning because you're bringing together a bunch of really good things for humans on this planet. And you're absolutely right. New York will bring the worst and the best out in people. It's a pressure cooker from Everyone everywhere around the world is here and they're being human and you can't stop being human here and you'll see the entire spectrum of human behavior and the human condition and if you can practice here you can practice anywhere that song about New York is absolutely true so we've got this oasis in the heart of New York City and it's It's incredible to have a place I I run this place called Three Jewels. I like that you called it my firm. It's not my firm. It's a non-profit. It was started by a nun, the first African-American nun uh 
in 1994, I want to say 95. She started this tiny center where she gave meditation free or by donation in this bookstore because she was learning the Tibetan Buddhist lineage. And I walked in there on opening night by mistake and she took care of me and they taught me meditation and it changed my life, like literally shifted the direction where my life was going. And now, 26 years later, I, I get the privilege to take care of this nonprofit. We have like 46,000 visits a year. We teach meditation, yoga, Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, but for New Yorkers, like aggressive, you know, <laughs> like how to deal with all the problems. And it really feels like finding an oasis, an eye of the storm where things are still, and then you can still go outside and I don't know the number of spiritual friends that I found and I feel like this connection with our short conversation so far with you it feels like this with all the people at Three Jewels and that's what I do mostly and of course I do corporate change management done that for 17 years happy to have this conversation and share anything and everything uh, you would like to know oh my god this is amazing Hector like you said it's a spiritual connection and when you are vibrating at a certain frequency you are attracting people of the same frequency. So the universe is a trick. This is what I tell people. The universe is a trick. Stop trying to manifest things because the universe simply responds to your frequency. You have to be in a state of kindness to attract kindness into your life. You have to be in a state of love to attract love into your life. You have to create the emotion that you want to attract in your life. And the universe is a trick. If you think you can manifest what you want, you're highly mistaken. And I learned that lesson the hard way, you know. I kept making bucket lists in my life. When I was 20, I made a bucket list that I wanted to do an MBA, I wanted to live in New York. And you know, by a strange set of events, I ended up in an abusive marriage at the age of 21 and everything got over, like the bucket list, the dream list, I forgot about it. A tornado hit my life, I got uprooted from that abusive marriage and that near-to-death experience. I got pulled out and suddenly I'm doing an MBA and seven years fast forward, I am in New York. So the bucket list that I wrote accidentally on the laptop when I was 20 years old on the computer, when I was in an advertising agency came true and I was like, oh my God, be careful what you wish for, it's gonna come true. But I had to go through that turbulence, that pain of that near-to-death experience and abusive marriage for that wish list to come through. Then another time I made a bucket list about the places I wanted to visit in the world, the people I wanted to meet, the work I wanted to do, all of it again came true. And at the end of it, I'm in New York City, living there, working in Chicago, living in high-rise hotels, expensive hotels where I'm throwing money off like this, you know, like $500 a night and $1,000 for a flight. And I was living the life, but at the peak of my career, cold depression hit. And I know the words for it now. So I'm like, be careful what you wish for because there's a price to pay. Yeah. Everything comes at a price. And then I said, dear universe, I have nothing to manifest anymore after having learned the lesson twice. I don't want to ask for a list. Why don't you tell me what you want from me? And I'll make it come true. Woo! And the universe put me on a journey for two years. On a journey around the world, I was traveling to 11 countries in 10 months. And I came back and discovered Ayurveda. And the universe is like, go, sell this to the world. And I was like, damn it. Now I actually have to make it come true. And I became the saleswoman of Ayurveda, the saleswoman of preventive wellness life science. From being a devil's advocate, I came down to this. So this is what the universe does. It teaches you lessons. And... The reason I wanted to bring up the story is because just before getting on this recording, we spoke about something that's common between us. It's the Buddhas in our life who come to teach us a lesson. Yeah. 
There was one such Buddha in your life. Yeah. Who came and taught you a powerful lesson, uprooted Hector from his corporate career, and just threw him into this tornado, and he landed somewhere else with his big white beard. <laughs> you want me to tell you the story of the angry boss? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, a, a couple of things I've got to say about how things come to be in our world, right? Because. I, uh, we might use slightly different language, but it's the same thing. You said that you know we vibrate at a certain frequency, and that's what we experience or manifest. You know, and a kind of forceful trying might give you a result that it won't be the result. You know, careful what you ask for, because you may get it, but you haven't checked how you asked or what you did to try and get it to. Because everything will be a carbon copy. Of what you've done to get that thing, including all the garbage, and I, I first moved into New York I, in '91. I came to New York. I didn't want to come to New York. I was born in Argentina. My favorite joke is I was born there when I was really young. Seven hundred and eighty-five years old. Correct. <laughs> um, and and my parents migrated to Australia when I was ten. So I grew up as an Australian. My dad said, forget Argentina, you know, longer Argentinian, that place couldn't hold us. And he really uprooted our, our, our identity of being Argentinian, which I actually think was really healthy for me because it let me discover what an Australian or Western mindset was because I couldn't get rid of my Argentinian background. And later in my 20s, I, I had both views of the world and they both served me. Neither is better. They both had different perspectives about what is this world and what am I in this world. And anyway, to try and get back to Argentina in my early 20s, I took a trip and it had a mandatory stop in New York. If I wanted the cheapest ticket, I had to go through New York. And I landed in New York, fell in love with a girl, moved here. When I landed here, the girl wasn't here. She disappeared. She ran away. It broke my heart like Nothing has ever broken my heart before, uh, and this is you know pre-internet where you're doing conversations over the phone, and you know five dollars a minute international, like in the 90s, yeah. And so we had spoken 24 hours earlier. I'll see you at the airport. See you there. We're moving in together. And I arrive. She's not here. And then next day I ring her house. She's not there. She's not at her job. She disappears. Yeah. And I'm in New York, and I get this work. I become. I become a fashion photographer. I run an agency for fashion photography with my business partner Gary, and I thought we were just business partners. And I'm in my early twenties, and I just call him my angry boss because he taught me some life lessons that I didn't want to learn. You know, he would come and yell at me in the middle of the workday or in the afternoon, and he'd make me say. Anyway, so it was traumatic. You can see the TED talk. You had to get rid of the angry boss. Um, but an epiphany that I had in the middle of that thing is I met a Tibetan Buddhist monk and I had tried everything to get rid of the tension and the turmoil that you just described about being in a place like New York. And in your 20s, you're dumb. You don't know what you're doing. You try all sorts of things and you think you're not the problem. And I, I had tried every other avenue and nothing had helped me make sense of this really horrible, abusive work 
relationship with my angry boss, Gary, who's no longer my business partner. And I had been illegal, thanks to his advice in New York, so I was stuck. I was lying to my family. They're all calling, going, you're successful in New York. And I'm like, yeah, I'm successful. So I am <laughs> lying to my friends and family. Nobody knows who I am. My clients think I'm fantastic. I can't tell them I'm illegal. You know, like it, I, I was under pressure and I wasn't getting funds. My, my business partner was withholding cash because I didn't have a bank account. Like I'm persona non grata. I had never had that much pressure. I started dreaming about death and dying. Um, I didn't know to call it stress. <laughs> I just thought something big was going on. And this monk I met out of nowhere and I had an aversion to everything spiritual. They're all cuckoos. Like, I think you just said you had the, what did you say? Your, your devil's advocate thinking, right? That's me for my entire life. Like I, everything's assumed wrong before I go in and figure it out. So religion, religious, anything spiritual, anything up until that time was just nothing I was very interested in. On the contrary, I thought everyone was a little cuckoo. Um, and so I met this Tibetan monk and he gives me this piece of advice how to transform the relationship with his angry boss. And I, I really was desperate and I decided to do the practice he gave me more than anything to prove him wrong to go see the buddhists are wrong too and i tried his practice which was in essence do unto others so if the business partner is yelling at you and abusing you the last thing you do is abuse back because that's what's causing your experience of being abused or yelled at so if you don't want to be yelled at don't yell i know it sounds upside down it sounds like gaslighting but it it was actually, the practice was a little bit more profound than that. Your mind has perceptions of the world of being hurt and abused, and you're creating those perceptions by hurting or abusing, righteously or not, others. So control your mouth, then control your body, and eventually try and stop the thoughts from arising that that person out there is worthy of you hurting them. So I tried this practice, three months it took me. He gave me like steps to do it. And there was this one night where um, I had been confident. Gary would come, yell and abuse and do the regular thing. And by this time I was way more interested in this thing that was happening inside of me. I could tell that a thought of hurt, wanting to hurt him back was arising. And I just wouldn't talk about it, wouldn't speak it out, you know. And I felt way more in control and this was just something to manage. And then this one powerful moment, uh, and it felt like a psychic break where uh, Gary was yelling at me and um, everything went just really silent. Like New York traffic disappeared and I don't know, like pitch silence. And I was, everything slow motion and all I could see was these shapes in front of me going, you know, like, mouth moving opening and close and then I realized that that thing in front of me I forgot it was Gary I forgot I'm me I'd been concentrating on my feelings on my anger and then just that shut down and I realized the first movement of thought about that shape moving was that thing's in pain like that jerky movement from his arm or that thing's arms and then I saw my mind saying, that thing is a person. That person is in pain. That person is Gary. Oh my God, he's yelling. He's hurting. And I had this kind of 
unconditional love like I had never in my life had had. I, I'd been in love with relationship love, but I've never been in love with a strange human being because I didn't want them to have hurt. And here was this shape. And I'm like, damn, these things just hurt. And that's why it's yelling at me. And I forgot it, it's yelling at me. I swear to you, in that moment, that angry, yelling, abusive thing called Gary flipped for me. And I wanted the hurt to go away for him. This love just burst out of my heart. And I, I didn't know what this thing was, but it was peaceful and it was open and it was life-changing. Like, I can't undo that moment in my mind. It was that moment that then led me to go back to the Tibetan monk and go, what the hell just happened? Please teach me, please train me in whatever the hell that was, because that moment changed the way I looked at every angry, yelling, abusive person from then on, and spiritual revisionalism, every abusive, yelling, angry person I've ever met. All the fights between my parents, all the anger in school kids fighting, all the racial abuse I experienced in Australia when moving from Argentina, all of it changed after that moment. No longer did I hate the people as you caused me pain, but I realized that the pain I was holding, and it was just a simple three-month practice, <laughs> And then my mind changed and everything looking back and every experience moving forward shifted. Do I still meet abusive people? Of course, I'm in New York, everything. Like you get punched in the subway. You, get, you know, like people are yelling taxis are like, what are you doing? Get out of course. But I'm not hooked or, or triggered to be angry back. Yeah. I can see that I should be you know, in normal circumstances, but it's not there. And if nominally speaking, I have to say it was the angry boss. And, and that's where we started talking, right? If, if that person who was a shitty business partner, abusive, yelling, angry human being, if, if my relationship with that person shifted my entire life like that, I have to say he's not just a regular, he's a suspicious person, a suspicious character in the pantheon of beings I've met in this life. And you could say, if you wanted to go there now after 26 years of Buddha study, maybe he's like an emanation of some wrathful Buddha waking me up from stopping myself from hurting other people. I won't, I won't yell at people on out of anger like I, I just won't do it I, I don't have those feelings you know and when I see angry people I don't want to punch them in the head like I used to <laughs> oh my god Hector you know there's so many words that are popping in my head while you were seeing this story mm. the wrathful Buddha placed mm. himself in your path the angry Buddha placed himself in your path to stop you from destroying yourself with your anger from destroying others in your path with your anger. Yeah. The angry Buddha stepped in your path. He was placed by the universe in your path to stop you. And this is what I say time and again, the universe doesn't make mistakes. Yeah. 
universe doesn't make mistakes when we meet with an accident last night i was talking to a client who kept gaining weight and getting sick but she wouldn't show up for consult with me but she would bring her mother for consult with me and i said mm. universe doesn't make mistakes you got covid four times you got viral fever and then flu and then this and then that it's a universe's way of telling you stop you're going down the wrong track very quickly very hastily and you're causing damage to yourself the universe places itself in your path creates accidents creates moments of high pressure because that's what a coal has to go through to become a diamond and you had to go through that high pressure to for the first time experience unconditional compassion and love that replaced the angry boss into something worthy of receiving your empathy your kindness your sympathy your pity and your love yeah and and the teachings are still there from that moment it has directed my entire spiritual research i shifted there you know like i'm still cynical about dogmatic spiritual practices you know and so i don't know if you know much about tibetan buddhist philosophy but they are i didn't know this they're extremely analytical they debate everything they try and prove themselves wrong all the time and that's my kind of people they're like <laughs> because if you can if you can find a path to understand the state of being that is rooted in you yourself trying to break your logic and not just blind faith for no reason at all there's there's a ground to your state of being you know and the practice he gave me in those 3 months i didn't know at the time was grounded in a very fundamental philosophical view that things don't have a nature emptiness teachings i don't know if you if you're familiar with that from the tibetan perspective the idea of emptiness doesn't mean that things don't exist it just means that the way you think they exist is not the way they exist only so gary the angry boss isn't by his nature an angry person but he is angry for a hector who meets him in a certain way but for the wife he's a nice guy for the for my colleague in the job who was giggling every time i got yelled at it, gary was funny for hector he was abusive for the wife he was she's happy he's a good business person for gary himself he's like i'm 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 a astute business person or whatever and so there isn't a gary that is any one of those things from his nature he's empty of those qualities this is what the monk taught me and on that understanding that gary doesn't exist only the way you're experiencing him the way you're experiencing him is your mental constructs about that person as real as you experience him not imaginary mental constructs your angry shitty gary is true for you true because of something in you and that's a difficult thing to swallow so he says why don't you operate with that understanding and if that's true a yelling angry gary that appears to be coming at you can be stopped permanently he said if 
you stop the seeds that you're planting in your mind or the change like every impression you're putting in your mind towards a Gary or towards anyone if you're yelling 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 you're gonna experience a world of yelling 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 and so he's the monks like three months kill the impulse to yell try to only plant mental imprints karmas right mental imprints that are the opposite of yelling kindness understanding and that was the practice you know he's like try for three months and you watch that guy flip and i'm like yeah whatever i'll do it so well that i'll prove you wrong monk <laughs> you know and 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 i did i honestly i tried to break him i tried to make it i, I was going to do it so well that i had zero that, that he had zero chance of winning the other thing he told me this is the thing dimple that really blew my mind he's like you're going to go through three phases the first phase is you're going to forget to not yell and you gary's going to come he's going to yell at you you're going to yell back you're going to have a big argument and then you're going to remember what i told you two hours later by the time you're home and he was 100% right i'd be walking home and i'd go oh my god i just i just spent an hour yelling i've just got all these mental seeds of yelling they're going to have to come back cause and effect right never fail and then he says you're going to go through this strange phase where you're going to remember what i said halfway through the yelling party and i would you know so gary would be coming and he'd yell at me and i'd be like yeah but you're a and then i'd stop half mid sentence which i did i enjoyed i have to say i enjoyed made ang- made gary a little more angry <laughs> cuz he's like come on come on say it hector and i'm like smiling okay and then uh and then he says you'll just feel it you'll still think all the terrible things but you would have controlled your lips you know like you control your skin and your lips but what you say and what you do but your mind will still be wild with anger and that was the most interesting phase for me because that's where i got to understand prana you know like i don't know if this is awesome thing in tibetan called the the merger between yoga asana practice and um meditation or mental practice and and in tibetan it says it's lung sem jukpa chikpa lung means winds or prana sem means thoughts yeah or lung sem jukpa chikpa they ride in tandem like horse and rider So if prana is flowing a certain way you will tend to have certain kinds of thoughts. True. Yeah? And if prana is working in different channels or in a different way you'll have different kinds of thoughts. Yeah and and if the prana is too wild your thoughts are going to come you angry bastard i hate you blah 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 yeah and so what i realized is after i'd shut my mouth and i stopped the yelling i could have a little bit of stepping back and watch the prana go and the thoughts arise and when the thoughts got wild my prana got wild lung sam juk pachika like horse and rider sometimes the horse leads sometimes the rider leads and i had no control of the horse <laughs> like zero but the last phase was just noticing the winds moving the prana beginning to shift in me which would then trigger the thoughts and thanks to that kind of contemplation meditation practice i could create that gap between a yelling partner and my choice to say something 
and I became fascinated. Dimple, at at the bottom of my tummy, it would arise, and it, by the time it reached my throat, it, it was a very nicely packaged conception that you're a piece of shit and you're the reason for my blah blah blah, you know. And I could watch it as a, as a scientist or something, you know, investigating, and that gave me power to just just not be interested in whatever he was yelling at. I'm like, check this out. This is amazing. And then you could you could feel it rising, and with your a different thought, you could feel it coming down, and 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 the rider would then begin to to choose where the winds would go. And in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a you know that's emptiness and karma together. The marriage between karma, cause and effect, in in so far as everything you think, say, and do leaves an imprint in your consciousness, and it must have a consequence, and you called it universe. It's a perfect equation: garbage in, garbage out; good in, good out. Gigo, G-I-G-O. You good in, good out. Yeah, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I will live in a world where hate, hate, hate appears. You know, I think everyone's out to get me. I'll be suspicious of everyone. You know, I'm causing the vibrational experience I'm stepping into. Except it takes some time for the con. It took me three months to transform that Gary, and of course, I met angry people afterwards. But you can't undo when you realize you're the creator, not by choice, but by compulsion. You're the creator of your experience because you could be in front of a Gary and love him. Oh, he's such a good yeller. Yeah, Hector deserves to be yelled at. My business, my my colleague would enjoy. Same words, same decibels, right? But for my the mind of my part of my colleague, good words, joyful words. Hector, you're stupid. Like there's no nature. Th- those words are empty. Hector, you're stupid. Hector, you stupid. That, there's nothing in those words. For me, no. offensive. For my colleague, ha ha ha. For Gary, like indignation, you know. And for a puppy. In the room or a cat, it's just sounds. There's no power in it, other than what our minds compulsively give it. And the study of karma and emptiness is you then decide how you want to be in the world, and you give it time, and you watch the world change. Which is what your story is. Like when you talked about your story, like you've lived how many lives now? You know, you've got the investment life, you've got the fi- the financial life, you've got the medical life, you've got the married life, you've got the traveling life. Like all the things you did there, you get to enjoy and live your state of mind that you created there. That's the results. All the good results that you're experiencing right now—they didn't come from nowhere. They came from you, you know, according to the system. They came from every kindness. If you're experiencing your life beautifully right now, they came from every dimple kindness as you traveled the world and really genuinely wanted to care of others, and then you see people taking care of you. Or, or the universe, or circumstance taking care of you, you know, and that's maybe the cloud you see me on Instagram. Like I, <laughs> I'm riding on that cloud because from learning that in my twenties, that's all I've done. All my corporate work has been. I know people want transactional business. I just don't do that anymore. I'm, I get executives from like large companies, Intel, Hitachi, Nike, Tommy Hilfiger, etc. They, they want. They want my change management expertise and 
and I'd give it to them. I've done the university and the MBA and blah, blah, blah. But I often ask, why do you really want to help the people in your workplace? Like, why? What is it? And I will always get to the very fundamental thing that we all want to overcome the negative side of our human condition. And then my job as a well-educated Tibetan Buddhist who hates being called a Buddhist, so that's why I call myself the wake-uppist, because that's what Buddha means, Bud to awake, Buddha, the one who woke up. So I'm a wake-uppist, I'm not a Buddhist, not dogmatic. <laughs> I just want to practice <laughs> the <laughs> So oh my for my corporate people, I'm like, come on, you're going to die. All the garbage you're doing in your business, it's going to be forgotten in three years, five years, ten years. But the imprints you live in your mind and in the mind of your of your colleagues, your customers, your friends, they will not die. They will create a momentum of their life experience. And if it's, it was good, it'll be awesome. And if it was greedy, it'll be greed. Uh, or, you know, like it'll be the results of greed. If you were greedy, you will be in a world of greed. So the beauty about your answer, Hector, is it reminded me of many parts of my own life. You know, it's amazing how... The other person in front of you is a reflection of your life so far, where you are right now, and where you're heading. So every conversation that you attract into your life is based on what you want to do with your life right now. Prana is, by the way, is the name of my clinic. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> we named it Prana five years ago because I couldn't think of a name and I was like, what is it that would encapsulate everything that we're trying to do? Prana means source of life. And at the clinic, we basically allow people to get in touch with their source of life again, which is brimming inside of them, which is nature functioning inside of them. And we just allow nature to function again through Ayurvedic curves and medicines by pulling out all the toxins and the preservatives and the packaged foods and the junk that they've eaten. We pull all of that out through the detox and we allow nature to function inside. That's one. Number two, horse riding. During the pandemic, I was locked out of my apartment and my clinic for eight months because of the situation in Bombay being so catastrophic that my parents immediately threw me out of the city for safety. And I lost access to everything that I'd built that I could identify with. My clinic, my home, my social life, everything was gone and I was in a suitcase with seven pairs of clothes. I was literally my entire life and me was in a suitcase with seven pairs of clothes and I had to last for I don't know how many days, it was indefinite. I ended up for eight months in Chennai, Bangalore and the last two and a half months was in the countryside with 16 beautiful horses, a hundred acre farm, which was a residential school, the kids were gone home. This was my uncle's school. We ended up at the school for safety and I had horse riding lessons every day in the morning for an hour and a half or two. And I painted these horses when I was nine years old, 10 years old. My mother trained me in art. I did watercolors, a lot, oil painting. And I kept painting horses again and again. And the teacher told my mother she's obsessed with horses, but she's doing a good job. So I'm not going to stop her. And all the horses that I painted didn't have a name, but I identified with them, their personality, their eyes, the emotions they were feeling at a point in time when that picture was captured, which I converted into an art. And all those horses came alive in 2020 and I saw them in person at the farm. Each one of them with the exact same design and print and skin color and personality. One had an angry personality, one was naughty and ran away with me, clinging onto him for dear life. One 
tried to sit on me and roll over into the hay while I was still sitting on it. <laughs> All of it came to life. And the funny part is, I didn't know until then that I was going through what is called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where you've been through some severe trauma, but to deal with the trauma, you shut down all your emotions and you just survive. So I did not cry when I had near-to-death experiences and an abusive marriage and I was abused physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I just shut down and I said, I have to survive, I have to survive, I have to live. So I shut down all that trauma and 14 years later, the trauma showed up and I had no place to hide. I had to hold conversations with the demons of my past because I was in quarantine in the same room where my life ended. For 13 days, I was in that same room holding conversations with my demons and all of it resurfaced. And the post-traumatic stress disorder just showed up after 14 years. And I was transported from Chennai to Bangalore by road. My parents didn't know how to handle me because I said, I don't have a reason to live. I don't have a reason to live. And they wow. got me scared. They didn't know how to handle that. And by some strange deliverance of the universe, my cousin called up on that same day, completely unaware of this meltdown that was happening. She said, hey, why don't you come to Bangalore to spend time with the niece who's two years old and who calls me mama. By some strange deliverance, the universe pulled me out of that place where I kept screaming and yelling and crying, saying, I don't have a reason to live. I don't have a reason to live. Why did I have to go through this trauma? Why me? Why me? And I couldn't have an answer. So the universe pulled me out and put me in my cousin's home where my, I played with my niece for two and a half months and I started laughing and smiling and chasing around the house with her. We were two two-year-olds running all over the house playing and my uncle could see me transforming and healing and then I'm face to face with these horses. And I was like, what's happening? What's the universe doing? Because I did a presentation five years ago called The Happiness Project where I said PTSD can be cured with horse therapy. Equestrian training can help cure women who've gone through trauma, rape victims and soldiers who've returned back from the army. And all of that was coming true. And I'm face to face with these horses and I learned how to ride horses. And I learned that you can't lie to a horse. The Ooh. horse reads what you're not communicating. You can teach the horse to understand what you're communicating, but the horse is reading what you're not communicating, which is your true emotions. You can't lie to a horse. If there's fear inside of you, the horse will smell it. If you're not trustworthy, the horse will step back. If the horse trusts you, the horse will step forward and take your instructions. And there was one particular horse, Field Marshal. I'm, I'm taking more time. No, Field you're Marshall. good. You're good. It's a beautiful story, like how horses understood my emotions. And my niece, yeah, yeah. two years old, who didn't know how to speak, understood my emotions. She would out of the blue, look at me and we were sitting there looking at the horses during lunch hour. You know, we would eat lunch looking at the horses. Morning we would spend horse riding. Evening we would spend horse riding. And I was just like staring away and she looked at me, two years old. She said, you're very tired, come sleep on my lap. And she was right, I was really tired. I was yeah. tired of running around in my head. <laughs> And I just took a nap on her lap and we have that picture. His, her mother took that photograph and that's the dearest picture for me. A two-year-old telling me, you're very tired, come sleep on my lap. No, we, we create such complexities in the older we get if we don't have or try and maintain that awareness that children have. Uh, and the, uh, I, I know this about horses. I don't know a lot, but I've, I've, I've heard this. They can totally read and you, you could heal by, by being around beings, horses, like horses who can mirror back 
and remind you what you're actually going through. Because you can't, if you see the horse backing up over and over and over, you know, even though you may not put words to it, that something is locked up tight not quite right inside of us, you know. No. And Field Marshal had a very interesting way of communicating with me. So I rode all the 16 horses. There was Audric, there was Field Marshal, there was Soul Mountain who passed away peacefully, you know, the oldest horse, the spirit of the farm. And there was Nabisco who had a very short temper just like me. Field Marshal, <laughs> when I was riding him, he for some reason thought I was his mistress. He fell in love with me and I fell in love with him. Oh, good. And it was a silent love. And there was a master who was giving instructions to the horse when to trot, when to, you know, start straddling and when to stop and everything. The master still giving instructions, while we were still trotting, the horse stopped suddenly and started walking gently. The master's like, wait, why is he walking? Why is he walking? I'm asking him to trot. And then he's like, did you just breathe heavily? I said, yeah. He said, because I breathed heavily, the horse thought, field marshal, my mistress is tired. And he stopped trotting and he started walking. He's like, she's tired. Take and care. he refused the instructions of the master. Instead, he listened to my breath. That's how beautiful vibrations can be if you listen to the vibrations, you know. And that brings me to a powerful question for you. Yeah, yeah. While I was sharing my experience, based on what you said, you know, because you were mirroring a lot of emotions and reminding me of the forgotten parts of my life. Good. That's a wake-upist, by the way, guys. I'm experiencing it right now. <laughs> He's waking me up. That's how powerful Hector's practice is. Please do sign up for his classes. Thank you, Dimple. I want to ask you about this one powerful tool that I happened to experience recently. And you experienced it many years ago in the presence of your boss, mm. the yelling boss. Forgiveness. Mm. How powerful is this tool? Like... I found it more powerful than gratitude and manifestations. Interesting. Mm -hmm. In that moment, that angry boss melted into someone who's worthy of your love and compassion. Yeah, yeah. You went through a moment of forgiveness somewhere, even if you didn't pinpoint it or recognize it, you were able to forgive him for being angry. And being 100%. Yeah. That's why you felt compassion and love for him. Yeah, yeah. How powerful is that tool and how did it impact your life? In yeah. a way you not see. I think I got to it. It's interesting because you're absolutely right. I never thought about it as forgiveness. Yeah, but I totally had compassion, and I think you're, I think you're right. I I stopped thinking that he was the source of my problem. I think that's what it is. Okay, when the monk taught me this idea of whatever you do in your mind, whatever karmas you're planting, whatever impression you're placing on the glass of your mind through which you experience everything, you know, and if you put anger, you must see the world angrily. If you burst out joy enough times, you will only see joy. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, we're just creating impressions on a very sensitive thing called our consciousness. And those seeds, like normal seeds, grow bigger and bigger and bigger until there's a forest. And, that, and we're stepping into the forest of our past experiences. When I realized that's the mechanism with which we experience reality, that's why my colleague was laughing and I was angry at my boss, yeah? 
if I stop the anger, then the anger should stop. And it did. So I think it was identifying through the mechanism that if nothing has a nature, if everything's empty of a nature, and the only nature things actually have is the one that we're vomiting out through our karmic imprints, which the Tibetans say it's 65 a finger snap. That's how we create experiences and perceptions. Then for me to have that epiphany of seeing not a Gary anymore, but a shape that was suffering, identifiable as suffering, you know, meant that I no longer ascribed responsibility on him for the way I was feeling. So the power of understanding the nature of Gary, empty of a nature, doesn't have the quality of shitty. He does for me, he is shitty for me. But he, from his own side, can't be shitty because wife likes him, other colleague laughs. Empty of a nature. So he's available to be anything, but for me, shitty. So if I stop the shitty seeds, I'll stop projecting shitty. So I guess understanding that mechanism a, gave me back agency and power to decide what I needed to do in my life to experience our life, the cloud life that I'm living now. Not clown, cloud. <laughs> Maybe clown. And, and because I stopped believing in the illusion that he is the source of my pain. That's the illusion from which we wake up. It appears... His, Hector, your stupid words, make me feel angry. It appears that way. That's the illusion that Buddhists, wake-upists, wake wake up from. The appearance that Gary's make you angry. It's not possible, because if Hector, your stupid, is the source of anger, everyone that heard it must feel angry. And my colleague wasn't feeling angry. Same words were coming out of Gary. Same person, Gary. My colleague laughing, I'm angry. So angry is not coming from Gary. My angry. It's coming from me. And that's where Lung Sem Jukpa play with the prana. And so I think your question is powerful because I never thought about it this way, Dimple. Because I understood the mechanism, I stopped giving him power for making me angry and took the hard responsibility i must have been a shitty person in the past to be forced to experience my seeds ripening as an angry person and when i stopped planting those seeds the illusion disappeared the illusion changed he's still empty of a nature and then all of a sudden all i could see was oh the this jerky movement, that thing's in pain. And I really felt like that. I didn't even think of Gary. You know what snapped me out of, like he stopped yelling, right? Like I'm looking at him, tears are coming out of my eyes. I'm looking at this thing jerky. I'm like, it must be in pain. Oh my God, it's in pain. And I just started sobbing from, I wish I could help it. Like this unconditional love came, right? Because, uh, I, because, if they're suffering, it should stop. It doesn't matter who's got it. Yeah, it should just stop. So I just started weeping. And then the inertia of my shitty mind kicked in. And I, this is 
this is the stupidest first thought after that whole disappearance was shit it's Gary he stopped yelling he stopped yelling the monk was right except I bet you he stopped yelling because he thinks he made me cry so he's because he was saying Hector you okay and I'm like oh he's looking at my tears keep crying so he doesn't yell anymore like keep crying that was my first stupid thought (laughs) even though I just had this incredible epiphany of unconditional love and the angry boss disappeared and my first stupid thought was keep crying so he can stop yelling (laughs) oh my god that's such a journey that's such a journey and from that epiphanous moment yeah. What changed in you that decided, you know, that you should quit this corporate career and instead become a monk in the city? And this is what my friend said. It's very easy to be a monk in the mountains up high where there's no noise, where there's no chaos. You chose to become a monk, a wakeupist <laughs> in the heart of New York City, where I had my epiphanous moment too, where I hit cold depression too. This and that forced the way I live. And, you know, this is something I've tried explaining to people. You know, I, maybe I can explain it to you better and you'll be able to understand. Time is relative to what you're experiencing. Yeah. If you're listening to beautiful music, time can flow smoothly and it can be very pleasant. But if you're holding something very heavy, with every second, time starts becoming heavy and starts hurting. In the countryside, it felt like my days were really oh. long. And I had time to do horse riding, play tennis, then badminton, then squash, four sports in one day, and still do two workshops for 2,000 students and interviews and seminars. And I still had time to eat as much as cake as I wanted. And still <laughs> I ate a lot of cake in the countryside, a crazy amount of cake. And I still played with my knees and I was still in the best shape of my life. My hair and skin was the best. And I was like, time moved so slowly, these long days. But it was the same day. But the minute I came back to Mumbai City, it sucked the time out of my life. It sucked the time out of my day and it was spinning so fast and uncontrollably. And I was like, what day is it? What month is it? A month passed? A week passed? A year passed? New York does that too. It makes time move faster. Yeah, it really does. There's so much option and so, so... Like the horse, you get to tune in to the vibrations of beings around you. You know, I'm in a building with 70 apartments. I'm in Brooklyn, right? Forget just the sound. There's an energy about being in here. You know that there's an energy being in Manhattan, right? And it doesn't come from Manhattan or the buildings. It comes from the beings in it and their states of mind. And like horses, when you tune in, we could read each other's prana. We could read each other's life force and we can sense, you know, when someone's bullshitting you in, in your consultation or they're bullshitting to themselves, you know, they're not telling themselves the truth that, you know, intuitively, you might not exactly know with precisely how, but you know, so New York is that, but to answer your thing, did I become a monk? In, I didn't become a monk. Okay. But I, for 26 years, I studied exactly the same curriculum that the Dalai Lama studied from his teachers, from a student of his teacher. So exactly the same books, except my teacher was translating them into English for the very first time. 
And so I went through the rigorous training that a monk would go to. I took bows and so on. But my teacher being uh, very astute into what was happening in New York, he's like, Westerners, you can't come and be a monk. Your practice to wake up, because the point of this practice is not to run away from life, is to transform life. It's to Buddha, it's to wake up. And you live in this shitty, crazy world. Your job is to apply these philosophies in New York City. You have to have a job, you have to work hard, and you better make these things work in this job. So I became a corporate change consultant because change is a thing that everybody goes through and it's a core tenant of Buddhist practice. You can change by mistake or you can change deliberately, but you're going to change. And if you understand seeds or mental constructs of karmas, then you can choose what your future experience is going to be. You can plant the seeds right now. And so I became a corporate change manager and I snuck in, not just what I learned in my MBA course, but all the Tibetan Buddhist philosophy. And my job was to bridge it into Western psychology or Western, you know, corporate HR speak. And that was, that was a bigger training than just learning the Tibetan Buddhist lists. I can tell you the definition of the three different schools of Tibetan Buddhism on dependent origination. I can tell you all, all the things that a monk would have to learn. I, I know them and I teach them at Three Jewels, but I don't teach them to collect information. That's stupid. Don't collect information. If you can't transform this precious human life that we have, before you meet death, then there's no point in any of this stuff. There really isn't. And your impulse to be suicidal when, when you were talking is right if there isn't a way out. If there isn't a way to transform your mind and wake up, and you can come at it in many different ways, right? I think Ayurveda has this incredible holistic way of addressing the suffering of the human condition because it can transform it, right? Now, the Tibetans or the Buddhists, you know, India first and then Tibetan, uh, it's the same stuff. It's just, you know, explained in a slightly different way. They attack it from the perspective of go to the source and the source of your human experience is consciousness. So meditation is a big thing. You can go in there and if you get your mind still, doesn't matter if you have a corporate job or you in a mountain, if you don't have your mind still, you have a shitty experience of being. You have no control of yelling at the boss. But if you if you can tame your mind like a horse, it's interesting because the, the word for taming in Tibetan is dulwa, and it's exactly the same word that you use to tame a horse, dulwa, you tame a wild beast. If you could do that to the mind, which has just a compulsion to react. If you could just step back and give it a minute or two before reacting and choose a response, you've transformed your entire life. Now you can do that physiologically also, dietarically, right? Through Ayurvedic methods, because that would change your prana, your winds, and then your thoughts would be different. Or you could attack it through the thought. You can concentrate and bring your attention precisely on the kind of state of being you want to fabricate and then your winds will change you know you and then you will tend to want to eat the foods that are, are conducive for, for that you see what i mean
so it's beautiful because you're bringing so many lessons in one conversation you know we spoke about waking up we spoke about tapping into our unconditional compassion and love for ourselves and understanding that the other person is not the source of your pain the other person is not the source of your discomfort but your perspective of it chooses what you're going to experience you could be looking at the same thing and experiencing pain or pleasure and that's why they say heaven and hell both are right here yeah 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 depends on what you want to experience right now i could be experiencing heaven because i'm having this beautiful spiritual conversation with hector but my housekeeper could be experiencing hell because she's dealing with fire and hot spices at that moment she's like oh my god this feels like hell we say yeah. this day in day out this feels like heaven this feels like hell this chocolate mousse feels like heaven this yeah. this ecstasy this moment with my child or moment with my lover feels like heaven but this moment with my boss feels like hell right heaven and hell is right here you are teaching your students how to change their perspective the looking glass the event is the same the person is the same the relationship is the same new york is new york it, it can be shitty new york or or blissful new york but yeah. the place isn't changing you change no. walking into the eye of the storm like gandalf did in lord of the rings by the ways i had to bring that reference back because you said it in the beginning and i was like i have to say this <laughs> you're walking into the eye of the storm and you know gandalf says something very beautiful to frodo when he says i wish this didn't happen during my time i wish i didn't have to experience this or go yeah. through this you know frodo was given this job of putting the ring back into its source and destroying the power ring that could you know destroy the world otherwise and gandalf said and so do all other people they wish they were not here in this time this zone this frame this space but our wishful thinking doesn't change anything correct what matters is what we do with the time that has been given to us and that line stayed by me so we have so 80 years 90 100 110 120 years in this world doesn't matter what do you do with the time that has been given to you in this human experience for you to evolve into the healthiest and the kindest version you can be is what matters yeah. you know this has been a deep conversation hector and i want to do another conversation with you because we've just touched the tip of the iceberg i want to talk just... about future lives <laughs> i want to talk about what happens immediately after because consciousness ain't going to stop so then you've got this life that propels you into your next experience of being anyway we oh, we should talk about that next <laughs> Yes, you know so guys, I know this has been a very stimulating conversation but we've completed 60 minutes which I think is the maximum that any podcast can handle. Sorry. But the beauty is this no, no don't be because we've just opened up the Pandora's box that answers many questions and we do not know which one line or which one insightful experience from your life or from my life or from somebody else's life could trigger a wave of change in somebody else's life. We don't know which one story which is why I say to people be honest be raw be real share your experiences because your story could inspire someone else and prevent them from going through the pain that you went through and for the longest time i hid all my scars and you know my trauma because i didn't want people to see the weaker side of me i wanted people to see the strong independent woman i put on this facade and i was it was great in new york and when the facade broke it hurt i said you know what i'm going to be raw i'm going to be real maybe it'll help another little girl not make the mistakes that i did you know of blindly walking into trouble and stuff like that This is the tip of the iceberg and guys those who are listening we're going to be back with another interview with Hector 
if he's kind enough for this time, which is precious on this planet. We're going to have more conversations on other aspects of humanity, other aspects of the human emotions, because it's an ocean and we've actually not come to terms with our own emotions, which is why we struggle. How do we come in terms with our emotions and embrace our good and bad instead of fighting and struggling a battle within us? How do we come to a moment of peace? We're going to learn more from Hector. Hector, what's your final message for this podcast? <laughs> know that in any moment at all, you are Frodo. I'm going to say that. <laughs> in the face of anything, in the face of any, like, we will have to face many, many terrible things in life. Everyone does, you know. And with a little, medium, large, know that you are Frodo. A tiny little effort, you can transform an entire world with your actions and it just it a takes some confidence but b it just takes trying you just need to try and you can change your world at any time the world doesn't have the nature that you think it did you can transform the worst suffering into the highest teachings at any moment so i hope you do you're frodo <laughs>